Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. For the invitation uh, team, and it's a great, great pleasure to be able to come back and talk uh, both about Greece and about conflict uh, in the later talk. Has anybody been in Greece before? Okay, well there are a few of you. You might know something about Greece or you might know a lot. Uh, so, uh, let's see. Am I supposed to be, this one is not moving. So sorry. We are. Okay, all right, all right. Now, now it's moving. So there is an alternative title if you prefer it uh, Greece and the Eurozone, a background context and prospects. Uh, so uh, I'll go over a background on Greece, uh, especially for those of you who know very little about it. Uh, we'll talk about the debt crisis that occurred about 2010 and its evolution uh, in terms of the, economic and, uh, the economics and politics of it, provide some context where this happened, the Eurozone and the European Union, and maybe if I have time I'll talk about the future prospects that uh, exist for Greece and the Eurozone and the EU as well. So Greece is part of the European Union since uh, 1981, there are uh, 27 countries now. There used to be 28 with, uh, before Brexit, before the, the UK left the European Union. Uh, Greece adopted the euro in 2001. The euro actually came in online in 1999. And there are 19 countries that share the same currency, the euro. So that's sort of uh, the eurozone. Uh, Greece has a population of about uh, 10.7 million, about the same as the state of Georgia, I understand. Uh, it has a GDP per capita in nominal terms of about $20,000 a year. In uh, real terms, purchasing power parity, PPP, as it's called, about $30,000 a year. Uh, it went through a debt crisis in 2010, following the 2008 great financial crisis, the great recession that started in the US, and that's the debt crisis is a, sort of follows the, that great recession. And it followed, the Greece had a depression, an economic depression. Its GDP went down by 27% over five years, and has been followed by stagnation since then. So uh, just a preview, uh, I will talk about the Greece, Greece's debt crisis as a symptom 
of mainly the problems of having 19 countries sharing the same currency, something that has not occurred you know, for a long time in history. I mean, it has never been sustainable to have many sovereign countries sharing the same currency, and that's a symptom. And there are other problems uh, in the Eurozone, from Ireland's banks to and the EU, Italy stagnation, Brexit, and general popular dissatisfaction that has, for most countries in the EU, and especially in the Eurozone, which is a thing you have a significant stagnation, but in Greece it's more pronounced than in most countries. So here you have the path of GDP from 2008 having, a, a, say, at a fixing for every country that you he, he, see here in 2008, uh, you had fixing it at 100, you see that um, the country that was first hit by the great financial crisis was actually Ireland, and that has to do with the banking crisis, but it recovered after, after it lost more than 12% uh, of its GDP. But for Greece, the remedy, the so-called bailouts, were maybe worse than the disease in some ways, and you had a reduction, as we said, about uh, 2000, up to 2014, you had a reduction of 27% of GDP, and if you project this further from, you know, from since then, you know, you went down from 2008, and has remained about stagnated since then. With uh, some, this is a projection up to 2022 to actually have an increase in GDP, but we don't know whether that will be materialized. So the unemployment rate, uh, you see from 2008, it started going up and peaked around 2013 and has been going down since then but it has not recovered anywhere close to what it used to be before the, even the debt crisis, before 2010. So, and this is actually with many young, especially educated people leaving Greece and sort of going into uh, other Eurozone countries to in seeking employment. So that underestimates the degree of employment problems that exist there. And uh, this picture, this graph, shows the debt-to-GDP ratio, meaning that's a measure of the sustainability of debt, usually of public debt. And what you had is about uh, uh, from 2000 to uh, 2008, it was a bit above 100% of GDP. Then you had the financial crisis hit in 2008 and started going up, and that's when the debt crisis hit Greece, and you had a series of agreements and uh, supposedly bailouts uh, that sort of in 2012 they brought it down a little bit, they brought the debt down a little bit, but as you see, despite all the sort of so-called remedies that you had and bailouts, uh, the debt-to-GDP ratio is about 180 percent, 
and for, for 2020 actually it went up to 207% as a result of the COVID, sort of what, what you had that increased that, right? So this is a very high public debt to GDP ratio, especially for a country that does not have its own currency, and there are not many countries that you have. I mean, Japan has more than 200, I mean, it's approaching 300%, but they, are, they have their own currency, and they print money, and they don't have a problem. They have inflation now is going up in Japan a little bit, but for a country that does not have its own currency, it's much more of a problem, because it cannot adjust uh, we cannot, it's more difficult to default or do anything like that. And we'll talk about the sort of <laughs> this aspect of it later uh, as we go through the different uh, agreements. So there were three agreements or uh, what you can call uh, bailouts or something. But uh, so there was a 2010, in May of 2010, it was a limited in, to a certain extent, and it involved uh, budget cuts and what is called structural adjustment in the economy. Uh, but that was not far from being sufficient. And the main, um, the main uh, uh, agreement was in 2012 12, that involved a radical change in the nature of, a de of the debt, and we'll discuss about that in more detail. Uh, but that was still insufficient, and there was another one, another funding agreement in 2015. And we'll talk about all of them in some detail. Well, the 2010 agreement was uh, some debt reduction in exchange for budget cuts and structural adjustment, but what was this about? It's called a bailout. But the former head of the German Central Bank, Karl Otto Pohl, uh, the Bundesbank, said, what was it really about? Right? This is from the horse's mouth. Not, you don't see it in the press usually. It's sort of something by, it's told by accident. It was about protecting German banks, and especially French banks, from debt write-offs, from losing money. It was, not, it was less about Greece, more about debt holders who were well positioned to have an influence. And that's sort of what the, the former Buddhist bank head says. It was inadequate. And as a result, uh, what you have at the time, the IMF, the International Mon Monetary Fund, had uh, forecasts about Greece uh, and the economy at the time. And it was projecting as of 2010, for the economy to go back to positive growth in 2012. But the actual outcomes were very different from those that were predicted by the IMF. Instead of growth, you had minus 7% in 2011 and 2012 in growth. Similarly, the unemployment forecasts were also sort of pretty rosy compared to the reality. By 2013, the unemployment rate went up to 27%. Right? So there was obviously the, uh, the 2010 agreement was considered inadequate. And that's what happened. And, 
And the main aspect, the main characteristic of this 2012 agreement was converting bonds under Greek law, which meant that Greek courts would make decisions about whether there is default or not, to turning into debt under English law, which means that English legal, the English legal system would decide whether there is a default or bankruptcy, so which makes it very difficult actually to make, to do a, 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 a default and bankruptcy under those things. So, and much of the debt reduction fell actually on Greek pension funds, right? The Greek and the, the, the German and, and French banks were able to uh, be bailed out in 2010, but Greek pension funds and banks, actually, that's where they, they suffered the most in terms. And as a result, this, uh, Greece had to borrow, according to that agreement, an additional $50 billion just to recapitalize the private banks. And in addition, almost 80% of the debt now, instead of owning it to mostly private entities now, became official, meaning that it was owed to the IMF, to the European Central Bank, to something called the European Finance Stability uh, Fund, and other Eurozone countries, which meant now, both legally and politically, it was very difficult to get rid of that, to change that debt structure the way it is. And that's sort of the very important, uh, the, the most important agreement, conversion from Greek law to English law, and becoming official to official entities to do that. So what you see then, you, you had a temporary re reprieve here in reduction of debt, but then it went up again, right? So it was not effectively, sort of not much was done. As a result, in 2015, there was another crisis. And there were new fiscal measures of 2 to 4% of GDP, increases in the value added tax, other taxes, reduction in pensions, no debt reduction. Instead, there was lengthening of maturities sort of uh, so as to reduce the payments every year. Uh, there was a privatization agency now of um, uh, many public uh, properties that was no longer connected to a Greek government even. Right? So that it's like, uh, sort of, uh, its main offices are somewhere in Switzerland. And that was agreed by the prime minister at the time after a better, better agreement was rejected in a referendum in 2015 by more than 61% of the, of the voters. Why does that happen? That's sort of a, a different story. And what you had, as we said before, you had 27% reduction in GDP over this period, still close to 25%, 15% employment. Highly regressive, what is called regressive taxes, uh, the VAT tax, which is like a sales tax essentially, is 23%. You have all sorts of uh, other kinds of uh, regressive taxes. 3.5% of GDP, you have to be, to the primary government budget surplus has to be uh, more than 3.5% of GDP. 28% reduction in employment, public employment, 
15, 35% reduction in the wage bill. And uh, the question is, was there an alternative? Okay. So, so when you have a problem with debt with uh, individuals, right, over the past 200 years, uh, 200 years ago you used to put people in jail for having uh, debt that they cannot repay, right? But since then we have personal bankruptcy, right? And with bankruptcy you can have, uh, it was invented because it makes it more viable for, it's economically more efficient because now if you have bankruptcy and default, then first of all, uh, the individual can go back to work instead of being in prison and be able perhaps to pay by working, right? By instead, instead of being in debtor's prison. And uh, at the same time, it makes uh, the lenders careful about whom to lend to, right? So that's sort of the thing. So one possibility was to have then, the alternative was to have an effective default with actual debt reduction instead of actual debt increase that you've had there, right? But that would have been sustainable mostly if Greece had left the Eurozone. And that was offered by the German finance minister. We don't know how sincere was that, but uh, that was things. So, so effective default with exit from the Eurozone so that Greece could adjust its exchange rate so that it could increase exports, reduce imports, so-called reduce its, uh, uh, what is called the current account uh, deficit, and sort of be, go back to recovery. But this is not what happened, and largely, I think, I mean, uh, we can go into details why, is because consider a catastrophe, especially the exit from the Eurozone by Greek elites, and as a result, you have an absence of bargaining power, right, on the part of the Greek government. Uh, or even there was even an unwillingness of, uh, to bargain. And as a result, you got what you had earlier, that you had this, especially this uh, uh, agreement, going, converted was from Greek law into English law and making it into official debt, right? So that was the sort of... Uh, that's how I would explain this. Uh, so there was an absence of reality-based debate in Greece and largely in the Eurozone countries about who has been bailed out, right? Uh, those of you who might have followed uh, the press, it was, well, Greece is bailed out, you know, sort of all sorts of stuff that, well, Greece now has more debt to GDP ratio than it had before. Uh, but what was Greece's main problem about the, about the effects of exiting the Eurozone? So it is sort of very important topics, but there was no debate in the press or really sort of uh, for reasons that the political economy of this is a different sort of thing. It's similar, actually, what is happening in the U.S. Very important issues, like healthcare coverage in the U.S. or foreign policy, are not discussed. Are not being discussed. So it's similar there. Sort of. um, 
well, one sort of uh, had blamed uh, or was due to corruption. Greece's problems were due to corruption, the main sort of uh, thread of the argument. And therefore, Greece and Greeks have to be punished for that. Now, it's not clear that Greece has more corruption, say, than Spain, Italy, or even Germany, and uh, one can talk about this. But one um, measure of corruption that people say, or oh, government employment. Okay, well, if you look at uh, this picture, maybe you cannot see it clearly, the different countries, Greece had about the same ratio of government employment to total employment, about 20%, as countries like uh, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, the Netherlands, Slovakia, Poland, uh, so similar and lower than, a lot lower than Norway, Denmark, France, Finland, sort of. And it had most of the government actually, if you can see the red ones, are about public corporations rather than government, general government itself. But there are other sort of things that uh, happen that uh, you can see. If you look at the blue line, Greece has excess military expenditures, a lot more higher percentage of its GDP for military expenditures than other European countries and Eurozone countries. And the blue line is the actual debt to GDP ratio. And the red line is what is a, is a counterfactual debt-to-GDP ratio that would come about if Greece had the same level percentage of military expenditures to GDP as the average Eurozone country, as Germany and France and Italy and Spain and uh, uh, other countries that had? What would have happened? Well, so Greece would have had then, in 2008, a debt-to-GDP ratio of 70% instead of the 105% that it actually had. And in 2010, it would have had 100% instead of the 140-plus percent that it actually had. And that's about in line with other Eurozone countries. So one could argue well, it's excess military expenditures. That is the reason for Greece's sort of thing. I mean, I'm not making that sort of argument necessarily, but I'm saying, and, but why Greece had so excess military expenditures? Well, um, it's considered that Greece is threatened by Turkey. But Greece is part of the European Union and the Eurozone, and you would expect that if Greece is threatened, the EU would feel threatened in some way, and you would have solidarity from other EU countries towards Greece, so it doesn't have to have this high military expenditures burden, right? Uh, and it would be supported politically by the other European countries. Instead, these excess military expenditures actually are absorbed by uh, military spending towards French aeroplanes and German submarines. And German submarines, by the way, that tilt and they cannot stay up straight. Sort of that's an interesting thing about corruption, talking about corruption. So that's sort of some of the things that come out of what is happening, what happened uh, in, uh, uh, in Greece at the time. How, what kind of uh, 
alternative scenarios you can look at. So uh, a question then is one sort of uh, about why did the government in 2015 capitulate? Sort of uh, why did they, uh, an ostensibly left-wing government, allowed itself to do that? Right. Uh, first of all, it was not willing to exit the eurozone in the first place, and uh, so. You have Krugman, for example, said that uh, now the truth in 2015 said the truth is that nobody believes that Greece can fully repay, so why not recognize that reality and reduce the payments to a level that doesn't impose endless suffering? Is the goal to make Greece an example for other borrowers? So it could be that it's uh, an example of other borrowers. But already we had seen from 2012 that the agreement there would entail uh, the, the, uh, would entail not paying now official uh, lenders like other Eurozone countries and the European Central Bank that made it very difficult to do that politically. Right? And the second sort of possible reason is that make Syriza government, the government at the time, example of political reasons for internal reasons within the EU, trying to make sure that nobody falls out of line uh, and preempt future challenges within sort of uh, other Eurozone countries or other EU countries. Right? Uh, Tim, do I, how much time do I leave at the end for... Uh, Five, 10 minutes for Q&A. Okay, all right, okay. Uh, so the question is that, okay, you are saying, uh, Skaperdas, you're saying that uh, you should have had debt reduction, but is this a good way of doing it? We've already talked about it, that uh, if uh, you have unsustainable debt, you know, the more you try to fully repay, the lower your ability to do so. If you have 27 unemployment rate, those people, uh, most people could have been employed to try to repay the debt by making things worse, you don't sort of increase the chance of repaying the debt. Uh, and we said, you know, what about the responsibility of the poor to repay, right? That sort of thing. But it's a two-sided coin. What about the responsibility of the lender to lend wisely, right? Uh, that's sort of uh, the problem of uh, moral hazard on most, both sides. And this is the reason for bankruptcy protection for individuals and corporations, and there is no longer dentors' prisons. I mean, there is a bankruptcy protection for individuals and corporations, uh, but not for countries. And that's uh, a strange sort of thing that persists. And the agreement itself, it was more like uh, the, the set of agreements for Greece, more, more like the Versailles Agreement that in after World War II that uh, led to eventually to Nazi takeover of the German government versus the Marshall Plan after World War II and the 1953 Debt Forgiveness Conference for Germany where most of the debt of Germany was forgiven by everybody else and including debt to Greece at the time, right? But Germany is, uh, sort of, uh, uh, did not want to do uh, something similar in, uh, in the case of Greece now, I mean recently. 
So here is a German scholar who talks about uh, these issues about, they talk about international solidarity, which in practice amounts to punitive austerity policy order from abroad and above, holds the citizens of an insolvent debt state jointly liable for their past governments, right? Uh, and the citizens are denied what is readily available to them as economic citizens, like bankruptcy protection, uh, uh, is denied to them for collectively when they are, have to do with the country, right? So what is then the problem that uh, I mentioned about having many countries, 19 countries, sharing the same currency? What are sort of uh, some of the problems? Well, one thing is that there is problematic bank supervision, regulation, and national deposit insurance that leads, that leads to fragmentation of the banking system to 19 national ones, but then has all sorts of issues, problems. Uh, let me just give you an example, a hypothetical example, that is actually a real example in the case of the EU. So suppose that you have banks from the state of Oregon, chartered in the state of Oregon, doing business in New York City, which they do normally, right? And suppose these banks lose $100 billion or $80 billion there, and somehow the rest of the country, of the US, says, you citizens of Oregon, you're responsible for regulating the Oregon banks. You are responsible for the losses of the bank, those banks, and you have to repay them. You would think that this is crazy, huh? Why would the citizens of Oregon be liable for some banks that they did business in New York and they lost all this money? And maybe they engaged in fraud as well. You could consider this crazy, wouldn't you? Well, this is what happens in the Eurozone. This is what happened with Irish banks in 2009. There were Irish banks that lost money in, by doing some funny business in Frankfurt, and then the rest of the Eurozone said, you guys pay. And they actually, I mean, surprisingly, there, is, there was some commotion. They had to pay. They, they, it was, became public debt for Ireland, right? These are some, just one example of the problems of having sort of 19 countries sharing one common currency. Uh, so as a result, you have absence also, you have absence of common fiscal policy, which means that, what does fiscal policy? Expenditures by the federal government, say, in the US. So when there was Hurricane Katrina, in uh, New Orleans and Louisiana, it was a massive shock for Louisiana. Well, the federal government sent both, tried to send, I mean, to the extent possible, sort of uh, uh, not possible that uh, it was late for Katrina, but still provided some, FEMA provided some initial relief, and then it had massive help later in terms of the fiscal sort of uh, apparatus of the federal government to do that. There is nothing comparable in the case of the EU to reduce the shocks that exist when you have a, a common currency, which uh, you cannot adjust. Louisiana cannot adjust its exchange rate. 
if it had its own currency, it could do that so that after a shock to be able to increase exports and reduce imports and adjust its position. Instead, you have fiscal policy by the federal government trying to uh, reduce those problems that you might have. Right? Now, even in the absence of common fiscal policy, you can have policy coordination to remedy current account imbalances. So, and you, we can see what I have to say. And central bank, the central bank, the European Central Bank, has limited mandate. It's only the mandate against inflation, not unemployment like the Federal Reserve has in the U.S. And you have limited labor mobility within the eurozone EU countries compared to the case of the U.S. It's more, it's more difficult. People don't move. They do move, but they don't move as much as within the U.S. to relieve economic pressures from one place to another. So talking about current account imbalances is that after the institution of the euro, what you see basically the imbalance was between Germany getting a current account surplus and almost everybody else, and I'm excluding other countries here, having a, a, a current account deficit, meaning that uh, exports minus imports plus uh, other adjustments that you have uh, in services. Uh, so, uh, and this persisted and precipitated the Eurozone crisis for Greece and for other countries. And there is no, that's what I'm saying, is that there is no policy coordination in terms of wages, in terms of taxes, to try to remedy these imbalances sort of that you have. So now, going now back to uh, thinking about, but not about the Eurozone, but the EU uh, decision making, what you have formally, each country has veto power in its decision, but de facto, that's not what happens, is that if a small country especially has uh, objects to something, there is massive pressure not to get, uh, not to veto a decision. So de facto, what you have, you have a small insider circle making all decisions. And uh, if they don't do that, there is ostracism, an effective counter to the veto. And there are other informal mechanisms that develop. And so what you had, basically, uh, you had the Chancellor of Germany, Merkel, and the President of France, Sarkozy, at the time, they basically fired two elected prime ministers, no matter what sort of, uh, how uh, badly they might have, but they were elected, like the prime minister of Greece, Papandreou, and Berlusconi of Italy. They said, oh, we have lost confidence in you, and in the case of Papandreou, because he called for a referendum, and said, no, you are out. Basically, that was it, right? Can you imagine sort of that's what kind of democracy is supposed to be that, right? So it, it's, it's a highly hegemonic authoritarian system, actually, when you look at it closely. And in the case of, uh, uh, give you some examples of what happened with the uh, policies of the European Central Bank. So as soon as there was a, a new government in Greece that was making noises about 
renegotiating the agreements, the European Central Bank no longer st stopped accepting Greek, Greek bonds as collateral, for example, in February 2015. Right? Then, when there was a referendum uh, 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 in July 2015, then the ECB stopped providing what is called emergency liquidity assistance to Greek banks, right? forcing the government to impose capital controls just after the announcement of a referendum. You can call this actually a postmodern gunboat diplomacy. And it's much more efficient than ordinary gunboat democracy. It used to be that uh, the British fleet would appear outside the sort of country's uh, capital and said, you know, you pay us back the debt or we're going to start bombing you. That was the, all the gunboat diplomacy that was discussed. Well, this is postmodern. It's much more effective, actually, than lobbing a few bombs, right? Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, so policies of the Eurozone and the EU have what you could call synchronized austerity, which tends to increase unemployment and everything. You have creditor-friendly policies. Uh, I mean, ten, ten, uh, tending to f uh, 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 favor the financial sector. You have, in terms of policy, because there is very little of maneuvering room because of the EU and the European Central Bank, the Eurozone, you have a traditional convergence of traditional conservatives and social democrats or socialists in Europe. And as a result, you have a political destruction of the traditional center of politics. And uh, so, and you have generally uh, a lot of dissatisfaction, uh, perhaps similar to what is happening in the US. Uh, so what are the prospects for the Eurozone? There is very little done to develop common deposit insurance. So problems like the Oregon slash Ireland example banks sort of can be a problem in the future, especially if you have a new financial crisis. No coordination <coughs> on current account imbalances, which continue to persist. No fiscal union, right? The one way of trying to solve the problem of having 19 countries having uh, the same currency could be solved through political union, but that's far away. It's not something that can happen, that will happen closely uh, anytime. Thing. And so the question is waiting for the next financial and economic crisis to see what the reactions will be. And there is still some sort of danger after if you, that happens of disorderly breakup of the. Now, what about the European Union itself? There is a problem of legitimacy and democratic accountability that is exemplified by the firing of the two prime ministers of Greece and Italy by those up. Yeah, I will be done. Yeah. Uh, there is a problem of Germany being informally hegemonic, meaning whatever Germany decides, being the biggest and more uh, and, uh, wealthiest country, having an inordinate uh, effect on decision making. It's unlikely to break up, of course, uh, but not 
but gradual erosion of the so-called fraud, I mean, what is more likely is to have a kind of countries do not following, uh, imposing controls on the, what is called the fourth freedoms and other things, and not formal breakup, but informal sort of disintegration of uh, institutional disintegration. What about Greece? Well, most likely scenario, you have, uh, you have first of all debt overhang, meaning the excessive debt creates disincentive, it sort of is a drag on the economy, and this long-term stagnation can be expected to continue. The young, and especially the educated, will tend to immigrate, right? The, you will have less educated and a smaller workforce and an older population. And, uh, and what will happen? Well, we'll say Greece still could be a good tourist destination and a good place for part-time employment during the summer or something like that. So that's sort of uh, service jobs, right? So not, uh, it's not an optimistic sort of uh, perspective view. Okay, uh, thank you, and uh, I'm done, so. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.